You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come Happy Halloween, everybody. This is Danny Anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. Um, we are in the middle, just about the middle of our yearly network crossover. The Christian Humanist Radio Network, as you know, each year tackles a, a common subject and we kind of uh, split up the uh, the who, who goes on what show about that. And so let me just kind of give you the rundown of that schedule in case you want to go back and uh, and listen to these in order. On the 26th, The City of Man released an episode on signs, uh, which I actually started listening to on the way over here recording this one, um, hosted by Jordan Post this time. Um, the Christian Humanist podcast, the, the flagship, is doing Unbreakable, and that'll be out the 27th. Um, uh, the Book of Nature. I couldn't remember. I couldn't decipher my own abbreviation there. The Book of Nature is doing the Sixth Sense, and that's going to be released on the twenty eighth. We are going to be doing Split, uh, which is the twenty ninth, and the Christian Feminist Podcast already recorded an episode on the Village, uh, which my wife actually sat in on, sat in on, and that's going to be re- uh, released on the thirtieth. And if you haven't guessed yet, the common theme this year is going to be M Night Shyamalan movies. Uh, every year we have sort of a, a, a vote, and this year M Night Shyamalan won. And uh, and so who knows what it'll be next year, but we had a good time uh, recording or scheduling this one this year. So joining me today is my colleague here at Mount Aloysius College, Nathan McGee. Nathan, how's it going? It's going very well. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, gosh, it's always great to have you here. We've been on several episodes now, and it's always uh, a good thing, good time to a good time to talk to you. And I'm actually really interested in having you talk about the performances in the show. Nathan is uh, director of theater here. And, and so I really kind of value his insight into acting and, and as a kind of lay person who doesn't really know the profession of acting, um, I'm kind of blown away by um, James McAvoy's uh, performance here in split. Um, but I'd love to get like a professional's perspective on that, which we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so um, let me just kind of jump right into the topic there, Nathan, the, the, the movie um, is basically about a, a, some people have referred to it as a super villain origin story. Um, and you basically have a young man named Kevin who, experienced trauma in his life and and developed a series um, of 23 and it turns out 24 um, alternate identities um, that has fractured his psyche Uh, and each one of them kind of uh, play a role and in the movie and um, Kevin or well whoever his real name is we'll call him Kevin Um, James McAvoy portrays basically several of these throughout the film and um, the idea is that there is um, this kind of like uber personality called the beast that's coming that's about to emerge and it's this super villain basically that with superpowers um that can climb walls and has super strength and its skin is impervious and uh and all sorts of things and um in preparation for the beast's arrival um some of the other uh identities 
kidnap three young girls to offer as basically human sacrifice uh, to the beast. Um, and there's a kind of class uh, element to this. The beast is going to kind of feed on people who have not been broken by life. Uh, and so there's a, a kind of a weird metaphysical argument behind this this movie that I think is very interesting and worth talking about and I'm actually very interested in. So um, that's the basic like plot of the movie. And one of the main characters um, is uh, trying to she's basically the kind of the girl who escapes and we kind of follow her in her attempts to get out of the little prison that uh, that the that the horde as they are called have constructed for their victims and uh it's a very kind of thrilling movie it's very kind of interesting and unique um also very controversial so i definitely want to talk about all of that so nathan quick did i leave anything plot wise important out and if not uh what's the sort of a standout scene for you that's uh interesting um I, I don't think you left anything plot-wise out. No, uh, I would say the the standout scene for me. It, I mean, you mentioned earlier James McAvoy's performance, and James McAvoy is an actor that I, I thought has been uh, doing pretty good work for a very long time. Um, and I, I hadn't seen this movie until we were started talking about it, but I had always heard how good he was. And everybody that I mentioned, I was like, "Oh, I'm going to watch Split," and they're like, "Well, James McAvoy is amazing in this film." <laughs> And, and they didn't undersell it. He's really, really good. And there's a lot of, a lot of scenes you could pick that really show off his acting ability. Um, the one that stood out the most to me was, uh, I think it's generally referred to when the horde takes over. Mm. So near the end of the film, after the beast has emerged, uh, um, the, the girl Anya Taylor joys character, uh, gets the, his real name, and in doing that, it uh, brings Kevin back to the forefront, thus putting all the other altars behind so that, that Kevin can take control. And uh, during the scene, you're seeing all of the other altars. I think there's three or four of them over the course of this scene, maybe even five, that are fighting for control of Kevin's body. And it's a really interesting performance by McAvoy because... It, it, he's not only changing just his voice, which his voice does completely change 100%, but physically, every single one of these characters that is portrayed carries themselves differently. They are unique people that he has created, and I think that that's what makes the performance overall so compelling, but to watch him go back and forth like that so quickly is is pretty fun to watch, just uh, as an actor, and I think just for the audience, it, it's... It's just a lot of fun to watch. Um, you know, this this movie overall felt kind of like a play to me mm. in many ways, and uh, like one of the that, that's that's something to me that's highly theatrical is this idea. And I'd have to go back and watch the scene, but I'm pretty the camera is sticking on him a lot of it, so you're watching him transform. It's not like it's cutting away and then it comes back and he's transformed. It, it does that occasionally, but for the most part, it's. It's letting us see the work um, and letting us see him, you know, like letting us see what McAvoy is bringing to the table. And I I kind of appreciated that as an actor. Um, a lot of times these filmmakers want to kind of hide their actors. Uh, and uh, to Knight's credit, he knows that he has something pretty special and he just says, let's let him let's 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 see him do it. 
you know? So that, that stood out to me. Yeah, that's a, uh, we, I have a question later on down schedule, so let's just take it now um, about the acting. I mean, from an actor's perspective, I, I know that, I mean, there are different schools of acting, of course, right? There's sort of the method acting, which I know you don't um, subscribe to, and uh, you're, you're a Chekhovian, right? You, uh, um, <laughs> you, you sort of have been trained in that school. If this, is that the right term? Is that the right adjective? <laughs> Chekhovian? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, and so I'm just like wondering from an actor's perspective, what it's like to prepare a character, uh, a single character for a film, right? And then in this case, there's one actor playing multiple characters. These are distinct people. These are not like a guy going into a trance, right? These are like distinct people inhabiting the same body. Um, like just kind of extrapolate that out, what it must be like in terms of preparation, how one – if you were um, doing something like this, how would you prepare yourself in terms of like sense memory or whatever? Well, I, I actually tried to look up a little bit about McAvoy's preparation um, because obviously all actors are different and everybody approaches things in, in slightly different ways. McAvoy is, is a classically trained actor. He was uh, trained at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland. Um, so he has a, um, a theater background, which I think helps when it comes to physicality and when it comes to vocal uh, his ability to control his vocals, mm. uh, theater performers, and for any film actors that are primarily film actors out there, I apologize for this statement, but but theater performers tend to have more flexibility when it comes to those things because they have to in order to convey their role to a larger space. You mm -hmm. know, you don't have to do a whole lot when the camera is six inches in front of your face, but to portray a role to 2000 people, your, your body has to be incredibly expressive. Uh, if you're doing all of your work only with your face or with your, with your vocals, then it's not going to read to the back of the theater. And so I noticed that, that the Royal conservatory, their movement training is, uh, they use the training, um, the theories of a guy by the name of Jacques Lecoq. Um, I love that name. I, yeah. <laughs> he should have his own and, podcast. <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty sure he's dead now. Moving um, with Jacques Lecoq. <laughs> uh, but Lecoq training is uh, very, very physical. Uh, I've done, I, I had some, some training in his methodology in graduate school. It was not my primary training, but uh, I had a little bit. And he tended, uh, so, so I'm not an expert, just to get it out there, but, but my understanding based on what I know about him and my, my training is he wanted the actor to be physically expressive, mm. and he did a lot of uh, mask work. So uh, I think you've seen my neutral masks. Mm -hmm. that I think I just showed them to you earlier this semester. <laughs> uh, those are Lecoq masks, and it's all about getting the actor to be physically aware and expressive. So if you're hiding your face, then your body has to do all the work. And I cannot say with 100% certainty that McAvoy had that training because I could not find it definitively written down. But I'm willing to put, uh, you know, pretty even money that if that's how they train actors now, that's how they were training actors 20 years ago at the Royal Conservatory and that he had that training. And I think you can really see that in this in this performance because his physicality, I, from my understanding, that's all McAvoy. Mm -hmm. None of that. There's no prosthetics. There's no, um, you know, extra stuff they're putting on him. So when he is 
a different person. That's just him using his body and his physical ability to portray a different human being. So I, again, without knowing exactly what he did, my guess is he found how each of all 23 of these characters, because I guess he did prep all 20, well, 24, even though we don't see all 24, um, he prepped all 24 of them. Um, I know he wrote backstory for all of them mm. to try to understand where they came from um, because that information was not provided in, in the script. And then this, again, my guess based on his background and what he brought is that he figured out first the physicality of all of these characters. How do they hold themselves? Um, in my training, the Michael Chekhov training, it, it does something kind of similar in that if you can, if you know how a person holds themselves, then it gives you an insight into who they are. Um, so the idea is you're kind of going outside into the inside as opposed to, you know, you mentioned the method acting. Method acting, that's all inside out, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to go deep, deep into the psychology. Um, McAvoy definitely is not a method actor. Everything I read seems he has um, pretty much the same disdain for it as I do. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he clearly is a smart guy. Uh, and, uh, as well as being talented. So that, that's how I would do it is I would have an individual, what I call, or what Michael Chekhov called an imaginary body for every single character that I can step. It's almost like putting on a jacket, right? I step into one, I could step into another and that's how I train my actors. So if they're playing multiple roles, they have, and every single body is, is different and unique and they step into it and they're this character now and everything is right there and then you move differently you talk differently you uh, in, engage with your other actors differently um I, I don't believe he's had that specific checkoff training but it, it it did scream like i i recognized a lot of my work and how i have been trained in what he was doing so that's probably more acting theory than you ever wanted on this podcast. No, but. not at all. That's uh, I mean, if there was ever a movie to kind of bring it into, it's this one. I feel like, um, and and honestly, I I mean, what I think, what I what I understand about uh, method acting, like I honestly don't know how someone would employ that in this role and stay sane. Like I feel like this that would be extremely damaging to uh, to try and go through that much emotional turmoil <laughs> uh, for that no. many characters. It would be, and it's not necessary. You know, McAvoy, I read multiple interviews with him, and he kept coming back to how important the script was to him, and that if this, a good script, if it does its job, then, you know, the actor, they still have a lot of work to do, but but they don't have to do all of the kind of work that you're talking about mm -hmm. with, with the, the method actors. And I've always felt that method actors, and again, my apologies to the method actors listening, but it's more about the actor than it is about the character. Mm. And I, I truly believe good acting is about bringing truth to the character, not, not to yourself. Mm. Um, uh, I think, you know, it can be good potentially therapy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, just, uh, I, I think it's more about the actor than it is the character nine times out of 10. It's about showing off, you know, look what I'm doing for my, for my art. Look what I can subject myself to. Cause I, I just saw, a. Uh, Kate Winslet has learned how to hold her breath for seven minutes to shoot the new Avatar movie. In what world should this be necessary? I realize that's not method acting, but but it kind of is, right? Like, I guess she must be playing an underwater 
avatar creature, like <laughs> Navi of some kind. And so she has to hold her breath for seven minutes at a time. I mean, come on. None of that is necessary. It's it's just it's so that she can have headlines in Hollywood right now showing saying that Kate Winslet learned to hold her breath for seven minutes. Oh, my goodness. And then, you know, Hollywood Twitter explodes for a whole day talking about <laughs> Look at what she has sacrificed for her art. I just, I find it a little pretentious. Sorry, now I got on my soapbox. No, no, I, I brought it up and I knew that was coming actually. it's. Let me, do you know if Joaquin Phoenix is method acting? Is is that him? He, he is. And Joaquin Phoenix was originally. That's why I asked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because he was originally the, the, the going to be the in the role of Kevin uh, or the Horde. And uh, and then for whatever reason, um, James McAvoy replaced him. And I mean, I can't imagine Joaquin Phoenix not being extremely interesting in this role. Um, but uh, I think that I, I just can't imagine a, a better performance than what we get Adam McAvoy here, um, who I'd really only known from the X-Men movies um, as young Professor X. Right. And uh, and I thought. He did a, I mean, for my money, he did a really good young, um, uh, Picard. What's his name? Uh, what's his real name? <laughs> I can't. Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. He, um, but, um, he's far more than that apparently. And so, um, and uh, so and one more thing before we move on, like, uh, when we kind of decided on this topic, um, I had uh, suggested the Hannibal franchise, but, uh, but I got outvoted. Um, but when we decided on this topic, the, um, everyone kind of gummed up the movies that I was going to choose. Cause I, I really think the village is interesting. So I was going to go for the village and I think unbreakable is a very comic booky movie. So that was kind of interesting. Other people beat me to it. So I had not seen split. So I signed up for it without really kind of knowing much about it other than um, it was supposedly better than some of his uh, Shyamalan's mid career um, films. And so um, I signed up for split and then watched it. And it occurred to me while I was watching it, it's kind of the perfect film for me to watch because this is basically a werewolf movie um and uh and and it, because you have this idea of this sort of beast emerging from inside of a, a human body right and so this is as close to m night Shyamalan has come to a werewolf movie i guess the village is pretty close when you think about it but uh but this is a kind of a perfect uh, film for me to cover and as you were talking it's also um about the kind of the physical nature of theatrical acting. It also occurred to me that this is very much a Jekyll and Hyde film as well. Um, and I know that in early you know, stage versions of Jekyll and Hyde, I mean, the actors who would play that role, I mean, they were doing the transformation just by body motions, right? And, and so I think that um, this is really kind of the, uh, 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 landed on a perfect film, kind of perfectly accidentally here for myself, so. Um, Let's talk a little bit before we get into the movie. Um, I feel like to talk about any Shyamalan movie, there's all this sort of context you got to cover before you can talk about the movie. But in the context of his of his career, um, I think this movie is is an, it pl plays an interesting role. I mean, so. I mean, for me, it's like he starts with a bang, right? With a sixth sense and unbreakable, which I think are both really fine movies. Um, and then I think I've told you this before. Like about halfway through, like the first half of Signs is really good. And then the second half, it falls apart for me. And I felt like that kind of defined what was to come in Shyamalan's career is like the second half of Signs on. Um, I'm really willing to uh, to give him um, a second look, though, um, because I, I do wonder if he was sort of like pigeonholed as the next Hitchcock or something like that. And I felt, I wonder if people are too hard on him 
um, and too critical of some of the things he does. Uh, and, and what are your thoughts on his career? I know you really don't like the last airbender. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, nor does anybody apparently, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, uh, like what, what are your thoughts on his career in general? Yeah, I think I was talking about movies in class the other day and I said, there's only, you know, like two movies that I actively hate and the last airbender is one of them. Uh, <laughs> So he has the honor of having of making one of the movies that I actually hate. There are plenty of movies I don't care about, but but as far as actually hate, that's that's about it. <laughs> um, you know, he's a very talented filmmaker when he really puts his mind to it. I think that that you don't get as many good films as he has made without being talented, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just kind of luck into this. I don't think uh, the kind of auteur that he wants to be. Um, I don't, I don't obviously know him. And so I don't know what happened. My sense is always maybe he, maybe the fame went to his head a little bit from the sixth sense that he bought into his own mystique. Mm. Uh, and it it became kind of like what I was saying with the actor. It became more about M night Shyamalan than it did the films. And, um, and so, you know, the whole like the twist, the thing that became he became known for, right? The Sixth Sense had a twist because the story needed, like it demanded it, right? They, most films don't need that. Right. And most of his films don't need that. So now they're become, they become, um, they're not movies, they're games, mm. right? Like, uh, you know, where is he hiding the clues so we can try to figure out the twist as opposed to just making me care about the character in this situation and taking me on a journey. And even in this movie, there's, there's one moment where he just can't help himself. And he still does that. It's the, um, where Betty Buckley, the therapist hides the handkerchief in the door. And I remember watching that thinking, why is she doing that? And then, Oh, it just so happens that that door closes and that keeps it from locking. So she can get out at the very end. Right. I'm like, that's, None of that is necessary. Um, it didn't make sense that she was doing it. It's mm. never explained. And then you're just supposed to, you know, kind of clap and applaud at how clever he's being. Oh, she, you know, uh, look what happened. Oh, look how it all worked out in the end. I, I don't think it adds to the tension of that moment. It just, uh, I don't know. You know, it, it's stuff like that. It's the, it's the tricks that, that aren't necessary. Um, but that said, uh, he, you know, I think why the sixth sense works so well, and we, we, we rewatched it not that long ago. It's actually a fairly slow film and I had forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Um, and once again has, is kind of, you get maybe one of the best child performances mm-hmm. in recent memory out of Haley Joel Osment, something that's very difficult to do. And then you have Tony Collette who is fantastic. Yeah. And he has a lot of scenes where he just lets them work, Mm -hmm. right? Where he puts the camera on him and he's still cutting and he's still doing things, but he, he's just letting his really good actors, he gives them good dialogue and he lets them work. And it's less about the plot. I I think the sixth sense works because you care about that mother son relationship. And so when the big twist comes, you're not expecting it because that's not what the focus of the film is. The focus of the film is this woman's concern for her son Mm -hmm. who is very, very troubled. And I think that's kind of the same with this film. Um, He got good actors. And I I have this in my notes, like 
you know, I don't think it's an accident that he asks Betty Buckley, one of the most famous Broadway actors of her time, to be the therapist. Mm-hmm. He wanted somebody who could hang with with a McAvoy and just give us just really great, really great acting and who isn't distracting. Yeah. Right. I think a more famous actor in her role maybe becomes distracting in the same way that Tony Collette at that time wasn't distracting. Yeah. Um, so, again, like those middle films, I feel like he's he's just too concerned with with being showy and tricky and just forgets my primary concern is to to tell a good story. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that actually. And the, the scene that I was going to talk about earlier was the one where, um, the, um, the, 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 the persona of Dennis, uh, makes himself known for the first time. Um, it's in therapy and he's sort of, and it's an amazing performance on McElvoy's point part because he's, you know, Kevin, who the personality of Barry is supposedly in, uh, he, who's this sort of goofy, uh, fashion designer and, and he's kind of got this very lighthearted, silly mannerism and stuff. Um, so Barry is the one who's supposedly in therapy with the therapist who, if you haven't seen the movie, the therapist knows about all of this. The therapist understands that there's some sort of almost supernatural thing going on with um, this um, instantiation of, of dissociative disorder. Um, and so she's talking to Barry, but she suspects it's really Dennis pretending to be Barry. Right. And so, that's McElvoy's performance right there is he's playing a character who's pretending to be another character. And then she, her performance complements that so well because she's able to kind of just realistically comfort that character and make him feel safe enough to actually admit that it's really him. And then McElvoy's transition from Barry to Dennis, which is done through like basically eyebrows. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's just, he sort of does something with his eyebrows and he's a different person. It's, it's an amazing performance. Um, but that's all made possible because of what you're describing there. The, the kind of, skill of the of the actor and i think you're right i think this is a movie where it's i mean i suppose there's a uh, there's a gimmick to this we don't know if the beast is really real right i mean and so the revelation that the beast is actually real and actually can climb walls and bend steel and is impervious to all this that that's sort of i guess the twist but it doesn't come out of nowhere but i'm pretty sure and i haven't rewatched the trailer i think i i am positive him climbing the walls is in the film trailer. Oh, that's possible. I it's been I remember yeah. I hadn't seen this movie and I remembered seeing that image of him climbing the wall. So I I feel confident that you're supposed to go in expecting the beast to emerge. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a, that's a, it's a good point actually. Um and so yeah, and so I think yeah, I think you're right. This is a movie where he kind of gets over himself and it's a Blumhouse um production which I think probably I, those kind of constraints probably help him, I, I would say, in the way that Hitchcock needed constraints too, right? And so um, I think that this is uh, the fact that uh, it, it's sort of past the uh, the auteur stage of M. Night Shyamalan. Um, although it's connected to that, I mean, this was a character that he invented for Unbreakable um, originally. Kevin was going to have scenes in Unbreakable and he, he wrote them out of it, but kept those, but took what he'd written for Kevin and brought it into this movie. This is a, a, it had a long gestation period there. Um, but yeah. And so, and I, and I have not seen like lady in the water and the happening and any of these other things. And so, um, I've not seen any of those movies. I really like the village. I think the village is really interesting and, uh, and you should listen to the Christian feminist podcast about it. Um, I think that it's a, a really interesting and underrated movie, but, um, but it'd been a while since I'd seen a Shyamalan movie before this one. And I was very impressed. So, 
Um, you were going to say something when I mentioned the happening. Um, I, oh, I, I this, saw this, you. <laughs> you did <it's>, a McAvoy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was not nearly as subtle as McAvoy's acting in that scene with Betty Buckley. Uh, I, I, I do not care for that movie. I, it does have its defenders, I guess, that, that it's just criminally misunderstood. Um, I will admit it's possible I misunderstood it, and I think I will continue to misunderstand it because I have no intention of watching it again anytime soon. Understood, understood. Okay, so before let's um, so because this movie is so is basically about mental illness, and he's trying to do something magical with mental illness. The conceit of this movie is that people who um, have this disorder, this dissociative identity disorder, what we used to call schizophrenia, mistakenly, right? Um, but um, with these multiple personalities. Um, this is actually a stage of human evolution. The trauma that led to these this disorder in these people is giving them literal superpowers and that they can actually do the things that each identity believes they can do. So the beast believes who he is. And so he is literally impervious. His skin is impervious and he can climb walls and he can bend steel. Right. Um, and there's a Betty Buckley's character. The psychologist knows this and she's presenting this at academic conferences. Right. And so it's got this, it's doing an interesting thing with mental illness. Right. Um, that is controversial though. Um, I shared with you one, um, article about it and there are many people who sort of work in that field that, um, were offended by the film, doing what it did with mental illness. Um, and I, and I am not insensitive to that. I, I, I do think that there is, that is a conversation worth having whenever something like that, whenever you're dealing with disability of any kind, I think it's important to kind of think carefully about it. Right. Um, and as someone who doesn't have that disorder, as far as I know, um, I, <laughs> maybe you, you probably know better than I did if I do. Um, but if, uh, like I, I, I was not, I don't, I didn't find this to be an offensive, um, depiction of that. Um, uh, and, and so I actually, I think some of the reaction against it was a priori and from people who hadn't actually seen it. I, I don't think that, um, I, as a villain, he's not very villainous, frankly, he's very kind of, um, sympathetic all the way to the end. Um, and, and so I feel like it wasn't as sort of villainous as they were fearing it would have been, but they didn't go see it because they, they were afraid of what it was. And, and, and so that's sort of my take on the controversy. What, what was yours? It's, I, I did a little more background reading because I had not heard that this was a thing until you sent me that article. And apparently people were complaining about this all the way back when the film came out yeah. in 2017. In fact, I found a really good article from the guardian from uh, beginning of 2017 that kind of goes into this. And that article talked about how the, the Genesis for what this film is has been in pop culture, literature, theater, film for over a hundred years. And it actually referenced Jekyll and Hyde mm -hmm. and this idea of, of somebody struggling with multiple personalities and that almost always those personalities, or at least some of them, were violent mm -hmm. and were despicable, um, were monsters, right? And so they were dealing with this monster inside. And so it, it becomes a metaphor. But that the individuals who actually suffer from this condition aren't monsters and their alters are not monstrous. They're just 
different people, just like you or I, and they're no more likely to be a serial killer or a monster than, than anyone else. And I can understand how, if you are suffering from this, that to continually see this portrayed decade after decade after decade uh, could really be stigmatizing. So I, I think that, that that should be acknowledged that those people have, you know, um, I think a, a legitimate issue there. This film in particular, though, I, I think does. It's very clearly supernatural. Yeah. Right. Like it's very clear that this movie is not trying. I, and maybe this is the problem that it portrays it because it portrays it, tries to portray it psychologically accurate up until the point it doesn't that maybe that makes it worse that that if you know you aren't trying to portray something accurately or scientifically um you're not kind of bastardizing it in that way mm. um, i i don't know how i feel about that uh but it, it's it's i think it's clear that Shyamalan from very early on is trying to say that this isn't you know these are supernatural elements uh, and I think that, that he emphasizes that even more with the twist at the end uh, or the quote unquote twist at the end to say that this isn't real. I'm not trying to make a realistic portrayal of this disorder. I am making a superhero movie or a supervillain movie um, where this is the genesis of the supervillain. Um, again, but I, I truly don't know if that makes it better or worse, but I, I don't think he's making any pretense that that this is an accurate dis- depiction of this disorder no i think you're right about that for sure um and i would even say i almost feel like i don't want to say that it's like celebratory of 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 that condition and i don't know that that would be a right thing it's appreciative i mean i think it sees like the creative potential um in in that condition and it's trying i think what he's trying to do is something that i personally find kind of interesting is the, a way to kind of connect our physical mundane world with that of the supernatural and to find like an avenue for how the supernatural enters into our existence, right? And so I, I think a, almost an incarnation um, sort of story there. And, and I think that for him, he, he, what he, the idea is that the trauma, uh, the psychological trauma is sort of the opening um, for the possibility for amazing events to happen, right? And And I think... That's about as far. That's about as much thought as I think he put into it, frankly. Uh, and, and I and maybe that's to his fault, right? But I, I really do think he was almost trying to be um, empowering um, for people who are who are have you know these kind of conditions. And, and so um, I, I certainly don't think it was maliciously intended. Now, whether it was like sloppy and careless, um, I'm, I'm willing to listen to that argument, right? Um, I personally thought the movie was so like like um lovingly made that um I felt like I was willing to give it a pass on maybe some overreach there. Um and so um yeah I, I definitely want to acknowledge that um that controversy because it is an important anytime any kind of disability is represented on screen, it's you're treading on, you know, some thin ice, right? And and this movie certainly like launched into that. And so I mean people even like talk about Silence of the Lambs still for the way that it um uh kind of talked about sort of transgendered people and stuff right and so um even at the time then that was that was controversial and so 
Shyamalan should have been aware that this was going to happen <laughs> if he wasn't. And so, um, but none, nonetheless, I kind of thought he did a good job with it overall. So um, if you as a listener disagree with me, I'm more than happy to take my spanking, uh, send me an email or reach out to me on Twitter and uh, I'm happy to do that. So let's talk about the movie itself now that we got a lot of background out of the way, 35 minutes into the show. Um, but so um, the overall like viewing experience, what are some elements about the movie like plot wise? Like what? stood out to you as you know particularly strong or interesting at least i think the movie is very well paced Mm. um i think that it i i I know it's classified as a horror movie um i i don't i didn't i felt it was more a thriller yeah and i realized that those are those distinctions are you know kind of loose um the opening few minutes of this movie i found very upsetting yes Um, the the abduction of the girls his dennis's first interaction with the girls once they're in the uh basement the dungeon whatever you want to call it where he literally drags one out um of the room and i I found that stuff to be very upsetting that that to me was the most upsetting stuff in the film with the exception of the flashbacks yeah um but it uh yeah, I thought it had a really nice sense of just kind of dread. The the movie, it does a lot of those really good, I, I don't know, like thriller movie tropes where they almost escape. Yeah. You know, to kind of keep tension on the villain to keep them there. Uh, obviously, they can't get out or it ruins the film, but they've got to almost be able to get out or they're just stuck in a room and it's boring. <laughs> and I thought that it handled that really way, uh, really cleverly with how they were trying to escape in different ways um, and test and test him. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, yeah, well-paced the, all the stuff with the uh, psychiatrists uh, really worked with me again, or worked for me I, again. I just think it's their performances are so good. Um, yeah. Horror movies often have really wonderful performances that sometimes get overlooked by, uh, you know, the, powers that be in Hollywood. And I, I think that McAvoy probably should have gotten a little more recognition for this film. It's just, it's a, it's kind of a joy to watch yeah. him work. And I think it, it up until the beginning and the end, it takes away for me, maybe a little bit of the malice just because he's so much fun to watch. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to root against him, but maybe that's what he wants again, was to create empathy and, um, but yeah, I just think it's a outside of those first like I don't know five six minutes, it's a pretty fun movie. Yeah, um, I, yeah, and that's one thing I I would agree with you. I feel like there's like kind of dueling misdirections in this movie, and that's how I put it. I think at first it it appears as though the movie's going into a very dark place. The the kidnapping, um, and then well the he drags one girl off by herself, and you think there's going to be some sort of sexual assault, right? Um, that turns out to be not what's going on. Um, and I guess it's technically worse. They're going to be human sacrifices, right, um, uh, down the road. But um, um, and so you've got this sort of like misdirection there that that's what this movie is going to be, this sort of torture porn sort of film, right? Um, but it turns out not to be that. And then in the flashbacks, that's another misdirection. Um, you flashback from um, the little girl's uh, Casey, I think her name is, um, her flashback when she was a little child, like, six, seven, very young. Um, and she has this sort of happy home life with her father and her uncle and they're out hunting in the woods. And those flashbacks are all positive until it turns out she starts remembering 
scenes in which her uncle is you know molesting her right um and we don't see that that all happens off screen um but you've got um that's another sort of misdirection so the 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 happy past wasn't really happy the terror the the present that we thought wasn't really happening either there was sort of like kind of dueling misdirections there so the the opening my i was trying to get my daughter um ella to join us for the show and she actually um didn't get past the opening scene that was too disturbing for her for reasons I totally understand and so I, I didn't uh, I didn't push I didn't press the issue but um, but yeah so I, I do totally agree with that and I would add to it the I think the one really cool thing about this movie is the set um, I think that um, it, picked, it we find out later it takes place uh, in the kind of maintenance underground at a zoo I assume the Philadelphia Zoo everything he does is around Philadelphia and um and there's a, um, uh, a really interesting kind of dungeon feel to it. But the set is also very kind of like cut up into rooms, like fragmented rooms, right? That I think really work with the theme of having kind of um, one cohesive body that's split up into uh, many kind of distinct spaces. And I feel like um, they make really uh, good use of the set as almost an extended metaphor. It's almost like an extension of the psyche of Kevin um, of the horde. And and Mm -hmm. so I think that that um, something that is really kind of cleverly done. And one thing that really stuck out to me, um, I want to get into like readings, um, like sort of thematic readings or whatever. Um, If this were a, a research paper, what would your thesis be about the, what would be, what would be your controversial thesis about the movie? Um, but to me, there's like a, a clear social critique um, that this movie is sort of built on too about um, the privileged and the underprivileged, not even necessarily about wealth, but about people who um, are doing, who are kind of accepted by society and people who are brutalized by society. Um, and the horde is a, a, an outcome of someone who is brutalized by society and the horde ends up um, trying to kind of prey on the people who are, uh, who haven't suffered basically. Right. And so the three girls that get abducted are all abducted from a, some sort of party, some class party. And um, when we first see them in their room, two of them are friends and the other one was invited sort of out of obligation. And she's the main character. Um, uh, what's her name? Anya T- Taylor joy. Um, who's been in a million things. She was in the witch and, and, um, she was in, I believe, was she in Emma? Was, did I see her in Emma? This, uh, something like that. If that wasn't that, um, and, um, but you see them in their two separate beds and there's a, like a beam between them. It almost looks like they're in separate rooms. There's like a splitting of society that's manifested visually um, in that one shot. And it's like a really cinematography is, is really great in this film. And I think it makes really good use of that, of the setting that it takes place in. So that's something that really stood out to me as someone who's interested in that kind of thing. Um, other thoughts on that or, uh, Oh, I just in general, I would say that that Shyamalan's films are always really well shot and they're always beautiful, even if I don't like the movies. Yeah, uh, you can never take that away. He's got a really good eye uh, and the shots he he films always look really good. And, uh, you know, going back to the sixth sense, they always have a lot like he always is pouring meaning, perhaps too much at times. Um, but but 
he's always they're always carefully done that's yeah. never an accident yeah uh, which i do i do appreciate and respect yeah and the village and one thing i told kim when she sat down to watch the village i'm like it has a really great color palette like i just love the i love the colors in the village i think it's just very nicely done right um I, now that you said that about the set being so overly designed i wonder if somebody like ari aster is sort of a perfected version of M. Night Shyamalan, <laughs> like somebody who uh, really carries the auteur thing to its uh, and carries it well, like uh, I think just in the first two movies that he's made. Although by this point in Shyamalan's career, we're also just saying laudatory things about him as well. So um, food for thought. Um, so let's get into some like readings, like some subtextual things, thematic things. Uh, did, you, did anything come to mind? Do you have any kind of like... Uh, like, uh, oh, I don't know. So beneath the surface understanding of this film. Oh, I think we mentioned it earlier uh, in conversation, this idea that, that trauma can unlock our real potential. And I think that there's, um, as I started thinking about it, at least in his primary films, not so not Airbender, not After Earth, um, but the ones that are truly his creations, there does seem to be a through line of people who are broken, um, severely broken, but that, that, or, or disabled uh, in some way. The girl in the village is blind. The hero in the village, the girl in the village is blind. Um, you know, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character in signs seems to have something. Yeah. And I don't know if he's supposed to be like, you know, autistic exactly but there's something wrong with him and the kids as well like the whole family is broken and there's trauma obviously that that created that and that family obviously Haley Joel Osment's character in um in the sixth sense you know it's uh, yes he's seeing dead people we find that out eventually but to begin with he just is kind of presented as like autistic mm-hmm. uh and so just this idea that that there's something else motivating, um, or or that the trauma unlocks and um, gives us access to things that other people don't do. You know, like uh, um, I can't think of her name in the village, but the Bryce Dallas Howard character. Mm. I mean, e- e- Ivy, Ivy, I think her name is. Um, it's been like a while. I think it's Ivy. It. Yeah. Like there's no, there's no reason why she should be successful, mm-hmm. and it's almost like she becomes daredevil, right? <laughs> That's she, true. Like her senses are heightened, and she can engage the world in a way that a person who is not blind or didn't have that kind of disability would be able to. That, that you know, they send her because only she can be successful. Um, so I, I definitely think that it's something that Shyamalan is interested in: is how trauma. I don't know, makes us better, makes us more powerful. Um, and yeah, that, that, that I really think that there's something there and even lady in the water that's present as well. Um, and I don't, the happening, maybe not, but again, I, I tried to forget that movie. shortly after. <laughs> you got me almost talked into watching it. I like one you, of my, <laughs> one of my new hobbies is going back and trying to, uh, find something interesting about things that people think cra- are crappy. So that's what, <laughs> It's one of my new fast times. Um, and so, yeah, no, and I totally agree with that. And honestly, that that theme is very powerful to me. I, and I would say that, I mean, even in, in terms of an educator, being someone who teaches, 
I mean, it really is about, you have to, I mean, in order for someone to learn, they have to be kind of destabilized in some level. Like their, their current concept of the world has to be shaken, right? Which is a form of trauma, right? You're sort of telling or in you know you're sort of letting someone come to the conclusion that the way they've understood the world is incomplete in some way right and that they for therefore need to figure something else out about that world in order to have a better view of it that's that's you know destabilizing that's kind of off-putting that's difficult at many times i mean if you ever you know going through college going through grad school all of these things are difficult processes that are kind of um brutalizing on some level right and and, and i think that there is a way in which the idea of growth through trauma is um is kind of appealing to me as as a as a as a theme and uh and and it's it's pretty timeless right i mean every superhero has to go through this and and in this case a supervillain as well and so um and i think that that's actually a really good reading about it and i i i do it, it kind of it rem- it's connected i think to one of my kind of thematic readings of this i have basically I think two. <laughs> um, I think I have two thematic readings of this. And listeners will not be surprised to learn that one is rather Marxist and one is Christian. Um, and, and I think they both kind of work together <laughs> very nicely, actually. Um, let me start with the Christian one. But I do feel like there is almost, there's a way to see this movie. And maybe I'll pitch this at Matt Brake over at Pop Culture and Theology and, and write him a little essay about it. Um, but I, I think it's it's like a dark beatitudes. Um, I the when he literally says to her um, when he breaks. So at the the climax of the movie, the uh, the main character has fled as far as she can fl- flee. She shot him twice with a shotgun, and he's gotten back up. And she's in a jail cell, basically trying to keep away from him. And and he bends the bars and is about to enter. And he sees the scars on her body, right? Um, and this tells him that she's not one of these people who's not experienced trauma. She's like, she's special, right? She's someone who has experienced trauma. She's worthy. In other words, he says. Um, that she's pure in heart or pure of heart or something like that. That's directly from the Beatitudes. I mean, I feel like blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs are the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. That's the meek. They'll inherit the earth. I think this movie is basically suggesting that people like the horde, like Kevin, um, who have had experiences that they have, have been perfected in such a way that they are the new inheritors of the earth. It's a dark vision of what that is, right? But, um, but I think it's basically making the same point that Jesus made on the Sermon of the Mount, <laughs> is that um, who is going to inherit the earth are not the people who have benefited from exploitation or and all those sorts of things, but people who have been exploited, people who have been hurt along the way, that they're the ones who are sort of um, um, in line to kind of rule at this point uh, in the in the eschaton in Jesus's case, right? But in uh, for the beast, he wants to bring that right now, right? He wants to imitize imitize the eschaton, um, and so um, that that's sort of one reading I have about this that kind of occurred to me as I was reading it. And when he said you're pure of heart. Um, that sort of was the the click for me for that. And so um, were you going to say something there? I thought I saw you hold your mic up. Um, And the other thing, I mean, 
there is a very, I mean, that along those same lines, it's not all that different than a kind of a proletarian um, view of the of the world. The, the the horde comes and they purposefully choose girls. Now, the the main character, um, she was sort of accidentally there. She wasn't meant to be there. Um, and in fact, she wasn't gassed at the beginning right away, right? Uh, do you know, like that was a weird uh, thing. It's almost like, um, I guess that was Dennis probably who, who kidnapped them at the beginning. Um, like he kind of isn't going to gas her until he realizes he has to. Um, but um, the, the other two girls who are kidnapped are people who seemingly have no problems. Life's been very good to them, right? And they've always kind of gotten things their way. They're the popular kids at school. They do their wealthy families. They go to a nice school and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the, what we find out is the beast is literally eating them, right? Um, he like We see him like kind of, it's, it's obscured, but it's very clear that he's literally consuming them, right? And so I, there's a very kind of revolutionary um, kind of subtext to this movie as well. Uh, and that's where I guess the Beatitudes turn dark for me, right? Um, it's like I, I get with the uh, blessed of the meek in spirit, right? I don't know that I think the meek should eat the rich. <laughs> should eat the rich right <laughs> some days some days i feel that way but uh but not today not most days and so um yeah so i i think thematically there's a lot of really interesting things in this movie um oh yeah i i agree you sold me and so um yeah so that's kind of my social metaphor and so let's kind of as we wrap this up we're approaching an hour here um, um is m night Shyamalan too cute. I mean, we kind of touched on this a little bit. Once Split happens, he seems to have kind of like made a turn. And, and I guess we should talk before we get into that. We'll lead into this question with the fact that this gets built into the the unbreakable universe. Um, at the end of the movie, um, as the news is covering this, some people in a diner are talking about Mr. Glass from uh, Samuel Jackson's uh, character in Unbreakable, and then we see Bruce Willis's character from Unbreakable in that diner, um, and that leads into I guess what a, a sequel to this movie, Glass, which. Unfortunately, I have not seen. I was real. I'm really up to see it now after watching this movie because I thought this movie was so interesting. I'm very interested in seeing what they do with Glass. Um, and so he kind of secretly created a, a universe, a superhero universe. Um, is that too cute for you? Like, like what, what, what do you, what are your thoughts on him at this I, point? I mean, I, I, it's hard to comment because I too have not seen Glass, and I would like to see it. And I wanted to try to watch it before this episode and did, did not have a chance. I, I think it kind of depends on what, what he does with it. I know his whole idea was what if superhumans actually were in the real world? And mm -hmm. what would that look like? And what would a supervillain look like if they were actually in, in the real world? And I think that that's an interesting idea. Um, I I, I kind of want to see, you know, I, you and I were speculating whether or not... Uh, Casey, you know, her trauma is potentially unlocking, has unlocked something in her. And I would, you know, if he wants to make that movie, I would very much like to see it, to see whatever, it, what it is. Um, I will say that if, if these people do exist in the world, um, you know, it's been 15 years since glass and now we're like finally getting one more. So now we're up to three people. Like, obviously it's very, very rare. Um, so I don't think we're going to have the Avengers uh, in this world anytime soon. 
um, at this rate, it's going to be a while before we have enough superhumans to create a, uh, a team up. Um, but, uh, you know, this idea that, that these people are there, but, but we just ignore them because we think they're crazy. Um, you know, I think that's, that's something that's interesting to talk about. Yeah. And, and again, like from who gets left out of society, like how many people who could have changed the world, I mean, just never got a chance to because they weren't born into the right family, right? They didn't get to go to the Dalton school or wherever, you know, and, uh, and, and do all that kind of stuff. And yeah, and I think that Shyamalan has like a, 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 I don't know what his family background, he's Indian American. Um, is he Indian or Pakistani? Actually, I, um, I actually don't know. Um, no, no, I'm not positive. Yeah, he, well, he's Asian American, right? And so, um, I apologize for not knowing that of uh, people. Um, so, but, uh, so I, I don't know what his sort of family background is, whether he comes from privilege or not. Right. But, um, he's definitely seeing America on some level from the perspective of an outsider, right. Uh, in the case, he's an ethnic minority. Right. And, and I feel like, um, that perspective is kind of useful. And so, and yeah, he's, he's a kid with a big brain, right. And, and he's got big ambition and yeah, like everybody like that, he probably overreaches sometimes. Um, but I think with this movie particularly, I think, I think he really found a maturity and, uh, and, and he found a way to kind of put his big ideas, um, into kind of function. And so, yeah, I'm definitely going to go see glass at this point. I like, I'm same in the same boat as you. I just ran out of time to do that given the state of the semester in my life. And so, yeah, but I think that, um, I, uh, has he done anything since glass? Was that the last movie? No, cause glass just came out last year. Um, now he did have the other movie that that's highly regarded was called the visit. Yes, that's right. With the parents. And right. I, yeah. And I missed that one as well. And I, I wanted to watch it. And again, I just, I never got around to it. So I think the visit and, and split were back to back and they were kind of, I think considered a, a return to form for him. I'm actually, I'm not sure when after earth after earth's in there somewhere and I'm yeah. not positive when that movie came out. Um, and, but he definitely like, I think for him, smaller is better. Yeah. Right. Like the visit, the sixth sense, unbreakable, this film, even the village, they are very small movies in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, where he, and he casts good actors in them and give them some good dialogue with an interesting premise and just, contain it. it it really seems that when he gets bigger and broader that's when things start to fall apart yeah i totally agree um and yeah it's a good lesson for all of us and so and you know you, you think about um other artists go through mid-career slumps as well i mean m night Shyamalan is like shockingly young still right i mean he's like he's accomplished a ton for how old he is right and and, and so he's had more of a career than most people by the time he was 30. Right. And, and, and I think, um, the fact that, um, yeah, you make a few missteps shouldn't overdefine his, um, his legacy, I think. And, and I'm really happy to see him get this second chance to really kind of like see his vision out. And I, I think he's doing some really interesting things and, and you're right. It is like a superhero movie that's more grounded in the real world than something like Marvel or DC. Um, like even they try to 
through costuming, make that look less comic booky and more attached to our reality. But it's still clearly not based on the technology that exists, for example. Right. Um, but this movie does feel like it could be happening right under our nose. And I think that's a really interesting take on the superhero genre. Um, one thing that for me, I wish we'd talked a little bit more about, but that's kind of my fault. I'm the host here. <laughs> Who am I blaming but myself? I'm the auteur of the show. Um, but the uh, um, is the the nature of some of the personalities. Um, there seems to be this kind of triad of personalities that make way for the beast that are interesting. You have um, Dennis, we've talked already about, who's sort of like the the detail oriented uh, taskmaster. Taskmaster, um, and then there's Patricia, um, who seems to me a manifestation of the abusive mother that caused Kevin's psychic break in the beginning. Um, and those two seem to be working together, which is interesting. But underneath them is Hedwig, um, who's a nine-year-old boy who's very charming, actually. When he's, I mean, and it's another kudo to the performance. I mean, completely you see him as nine years old, <laughs> even though he's in the same body. It's just through through lisping and uh, and the vocal intonations. Um, but those three seem to be kind of working together. And I think that that triad is worth considering like what it symbolizes, you know, and I'm sure you can go into some Freudian stuff about that. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I know I just brought it up out of the blue. Yeah, not not a lot other than I, I would have liked to learn more about all of those um, identities and, and even the ones we didn't get to, to see. Um, I thought that there's probably a lot there that, that could have been done. Again, not in this movie, but just and maybe in the in the sequel, we get to meet some. I don't know if the sequel is all beast or if we get some of these other altars back. I, I have no idea. Yeah, it, it looks I kind of like, hope we get them. Yeah, me too. Right. Um, and it looks to me like Glass um, talks to the others to coax the beast, beast out eventually but I, I, from the trailer that I saw. But I, I guess my quick reading of that sort of tri- triumvirate of personalities is that, I mean, Kevin's psychic break was caused by an abusive mother. Um, so Patricia seems to make some sense. Um it was because he wasn't meticulous enough. And so Dennis is the kind of meticulous OCD person um, who does the hard things to please mother. And Hedwig is nine years old, which seems to be about the age that it all happened, right? And, and so Hed- they, they seem to kind of work as this unit of the of the genesis of the trauma. They seem to be like the core of the, of the, of the split personalities um, and all the other ones. Orwell seems really interesting to me, <laughs> this super academic or whatever. Um, but yeah, th- yeah, there's so much to, uh, to go into in terms of the personalities, but that's one thing I, I would really like to think more about. Um, anything that you would like to kind of add on to that we left off before we close out here? The only other thing I, I would just say is that perhaps with M night, um, Artists often feel like uh, their trauma, uh, even if it's not major trauma, is super important yeah. and <laughs> that they're worth exploring. Um, and uh, the idea again that we should that, that us as artists should should suffer um, in order to create something beautiful, um, and that the best artists are those that have suffered the most. I don't particularly believe that. Um, but I, I just I kind of see that in this film as well, just kind of relating back to our trauma is that I think that's a very appealing idea to artists because they see that reflected in themselves, that they had to suffer in order to get to this place where they can create a, a masterwork of art. 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is almost an extended metaphor then for, you know, being an artist. And in that way, it reminds me of Kafka's story, The Hunger Artist, um, in which, I mean, he literally, he takes the the metaphor of the starving artist and makes that literal. Like there's an artist whose art is to starve, right? <laughs> and that's, and that's, that's, um, that's what his success is for him being admired for starving in front of everybody. And so, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, Nathan, that was awesome. Thank you so much for uh, joining me. Um, those of you listening, please go back and listen to all the other shows this week on the network. I think you'll get um, a lot of really great insight into M. Night Shyamalan's career, which I have a new appreciation for. Um, I honestly... Um, in my arrogance probably wrote him off too soon after in the middle of signs um, and I'm really happy to have gone and uh, and saw Split because it's a really interesting movie I highly recommend it highly recommend you listening to the rest of the shows on the uh, network Nathan McGee uh, Danny Anderson signing off have a great night happy Halloween oh, love is there.